This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We're here at the number one business school. We are indeed. We're at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And we kicked off our reveal of the top Graduate School of Business this morning, catching up with the perfect person. We're talking about the dean of the school, John Levin, who talked with us about being named number one and really on how the MBA program continues to evolve. It's really just a testament to the fantastic students and faculty and staff and alumni we have at the school, and I you know, couldn't be happier to be Bloomberg's top business school this year. All right, so it's pretty quiet here. It's a beautiful <laughs> day. The students will be milling around uh, very shortly. What's on their minds right now? It is a topsy-turvy corporate world, and as mm-hmm. they prepare to get into the next phase of their career, what are they most worried about? Yeah. Well, the students, you know, they're arriving these days at a time of great change in business and technology and society, globalization, and those things are all in their mind. They're thinking about, well, right now they're thinking about, what am I going to do in my 8 a.m. class? But then they're going to be thinking about what jobs am I going to get? How's my career going to evolve? How am I prepared for a changing world? And that's that's what they're here for. They're here to get exposed to all kinds of different opportunities and ideas and people and develop the skills that are going to carry them forward for their careers. John, you know, what's interesting, too, and I I think about on a day where we had the McDonald's CEO being forced to resign because of a relationship with someone who worked for him. Under Armour, there's financial, you know, looking into kind of the financials at that company. I do feel like corporate responsibility and governance is really front and center. How do you work all of that in to what you do here at Stanford? Yeah. We start with that on day one. We ask the students, what kind of leader do you want to be? What kind of organizations do you want to help build? And that just carries through the curriculum and the experience here. And it's never been more important to be, you know, become leaders grounded in ethics and in thinking about purpose and what your, source of, your responsibility is. And that's a big part of the discussion throughout the time that students spend here at Stanford. I have to think, too, given where we are in Silicon Valley, this time where there's a lot of talk in Washington about Silicon Valley, its role in society, how do you square? all of that being really the face of, uh, of Silicon Valley in many ways? It's a great question. When I came to Stanford, it was 20 years ago, and Washington just steamed could not have been farther away from Silicon Valley. It was irrelevant. People were just out here building things, making companies, trying to make the world a better place. And it doesn't feel that way right now. It feels like Washington and Silicon Valley have come much closer together. There's more... You talk about regulation, there's going to be more regulation. The impact of Silicon Valley on government and on democracy is enormous. And we're right in the middle of that. And I think that's a really important responsibility for Stanford to to be in the middle of that discussion, to try to facilitate connections between Washington and tech firms. And we're trying to do that. It's rapidly moving now. And I do think about, you know, we've heard from various Stanford grads or alums, you know, what happens is it's not uncommon for a lot of executives to just kind of drop in (laughs) and have conversations with students here. Tell us about how important that is as part of kind of what they learn, the experience. I think it's a huge part of what students experience here. 
it's part of what just opens their aperture to what are the opportunities for them in the world is getting exposed, first of all, to having a really world-class faculty that they can learn from, but then to have a mix of people just coming in through campus, talking in classes, talking to the students, meeting with them, and that's, that, that's really what opens their eyes to the things that they might go on to do in their lives. One of the interesting things about a business education is for a long time, it was a fairly straightforward proposition. It was an investment. You paid X tens of thousands of dollars, you came out on the other end, you got paid very well, uh, paid better than maybe you were uh, going in. It seems more complicated now, and, and maybe even some existential questions around why am I getting M an MBA? How do you make the case for Stanford to students? Yes, you're number one, but still, you got to make a case that you're better than the Harvards, the Whartons, and the uh, Sloans of the world. Well, all of what you said is still true. There's still great economic ROI on an MBA here and at other schools. What's, I think what has changed is the students have evolved. It's a much broader set of students. We have students from consulting and technology and finance, just like we always did. But now we'll have students who come in from, from government, from healthcare, from education. We have a student in the first year class who was a central banker in Yemen, another one who was a dentist in Nigeria, a woman who was an Olympic medalist on the U.S. swimming team. And you put all those people in the mix together, and that's part of the magic of the place. And then they go on to a approximately the same richness of careers. And th that's changed. That, that sense that the MBA can prepare you for anything, for all different walks of lives, all different careers, I think that's really fundamental to, to what we're trying to do. John, one of the things we talked about when we were here just one year ago celebrating you guys as uh, the number one top-ranked uh, MBA program was immigration issues and how that was impacting foreign students being able to study here in the United States. What's changed in a year, if anything? That's really front and center for us. More than 40% of our class is international here, and that's part of what makes the program so special is you have people from 60 countries and they speak 70 languages, even though it's a very small program here, intentionally small. And I, I, think, I think one thing that I hope people uh, appreciate or will come to appreciate is just what an incredible asset that is for our country to bring people in from all around the world and have them study here. And many of them will stay in the United States and contribute enormously to the great economy companies. here. Create great companies, go on to be great leaders. And some of them will go back, and that's great for us too because they'll bring American values and understanding and thinking back to their countries around the world. So before we let you go, it's going to be a busy day here for us and, and for you. What's your single biggest challenge in your job as you look across the next year? I think it's actually similar to one of the big challenges faced by any organizational leader right now, which is just trying to interact with all types of different people and different constituencies. And at the business school, we have our students, we have our faculty, we have our alumni, we have Silicon Valley, we have Washington, we have the university, we have the whole business community. And that's both can be some, one of the biggest <laughs> challenges, but it's also one of the things that makes my job so fun. And that was Stanford Graduate School of Business Dean John Levin. Uh, so interesting to talk to him and just reminding us, too, about the amount of, you know, students that come from outside the United States. That's still a big deal for them. So immigration, as he said, front and center. It's a big day. Stanford, number one, again, defending its title. And... Someone who knows about defending titles, <laughs> Joe Lacob. Uh, he wears many hats. He's here with us, a proud Stanford alum, owner of the Golden State Warriors, venture capitalist. Welcome. Thank you for having us here on campus. Well, thank you. We have a nice day sitting outside here. It's beautiful. So let's talk about your time at Stanford. You were a class of 83. 
you have to remind me. <laughs> <laughs> well, take us back there. What was it like on campus and, and your experience here? You know, it's very, very different. Uh, I was a guy that came out of uh, a very different background. I was a science biology major. I didn't really know anything about business, and I worked for a few years, and I, I decided I, need, I liked it, and I needed to get some business training. So unlike a lot of people who came from maybe Wall Street jobs, I didn't. I didn't know anything. But I got in. I came here. It was one of the best schools then, too. And uh, it was a great, great experience. And for me, perhaps better than even some other people, because I learned so much. Well, and you learned a lot about Silicon Valley in a lot of ways, which is where you really made your career. What is it about that connection? I mean, obviously geography helps, but there's something deeper going on between this school, broadly the university, but also the business school and what's happening around us. What is it? Well, I think geography does play a big role. I mean, for 40 years, 50 years, I mean, now we've been in the what arguably is Silicon Valley. No one knows where Silicon Valley really is. Right. But this is in the middle of it somewhere. And the truth is, it, the, the classes are great. When you come to the Stanford Business School, you, you, you are with great students, you know, all these other people that are in your class. But you're in this environment that is kind of hard to replicate. I, I told my kids and I tell others, you can't really beat it because you're in the middle of something that is hard to explain. It's a culture. And I think that culture pervades the business school and the entire area. What do you think about, we got we caught up with the dean, uh, John Levin, earlier about what's going on here um, at the school. But it's interesting, I'm curious about, you know, I feel like companies are dealing with a lot more in terms of ESG, um, leadership concerns. I think that it's, it's very much front and center, um, accountability. Like, what do you think has to be a part of getting an MBA today? As someone who has been involved with many startups yeah. in the VC world, and we'll get into basketball in a moment, but what do you think has to be part of getting an MBA today? I mean, it's just not about what's in the books, right? It's about a lot of other things, and there's so many issues that one has to be aware of um, to be a CEO, if that's your goal, or to be in business, and the world, it's a very international world now. You can't just think domestically, as we all know, and it affects the business I'm in even right now, as we all know uh, recently. So I think it's you really have to have a, an experience where you get exposure to all of those issues. And I think that's what Stanford and this place does. And it's very, very good at doing that. Well, the dean talked to us about 40%, right. I think, of their students are yeah, I thought it was outside even the United States. It's pretty impressive. So when you think about this place, Silicon Valley and Stanford, so many companies have been born of this, private companies. We seem to also be at a moment where private valuations, public valuations, you've been in the business of venture capital for a long time. What do you make of this moment where people are trying to decide what something is worth and there's candidly some disagreement out there? How does this end? Well, I'm not really investing as a venture capitalist sure. so much, maybe privately as an yep. individual mm -hmm. to some extent. But, but you uh, watch the market. You I, have I do, to watch. I do. I'm very aware of it all. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I would hyper say- Hyper aware. Hyper aware. You can't help but, yeah. but be. Right. But I would say that, uh, you know, there, the, clearly private valuations are very, very high, and there's some structural issues going on here um, with respect to the giant funds that have been raised and the, yeah. the, the prices they've been willing to pay for some of these startups or a little bit later <laughs> stage than startups. Yeah. And so I think that uh, the public markets, private markets have to sort of figure all this out. This is no different, though, that's gone on in the past to some extent. We've had these periods where private company valuations perhaps have gotten what some people believe to be too high. Public companies' valuations have to sort of make do with all that. I think it'll all work itself out. So Joe, the idea of like IPOing, is it still going to make sense in the future? 
I hope so, and yeah. I think so, because you know that's something called liquidity. Yeah. Uh, when you're in a private company, you don't really have that liquidity, and that's the big difference. And I think liquidity is a very important thing in investing. It's not just about return. Right, so, but even with all that money, that's whether it's in private equity or family wealth offices, there's so much money in the private markets right now. You don't think that that's going to kind of put a damper increasingly on, a, on the IPO market? Mm, I mean, it has to some extent, you could argue, yeah. uh, in the uh, years leading up to this period when you've got all these companies now that are considered the, the select group that are trying to go public or have gone public recently. And uh, they've stayed private for a lot longer than they would have because they had access to capital. Yeah. But at some point, not all of them, but many of them really want to have the liquidity for, or they just need to be public companies for the exposure. Right. All right, I've resisted for as long as I possibly can. We got to talk about basketball. <laughs> because, I'd rather talk about that. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I have to think you walk through this campus and there are yeah. people who look at you and see, well, that's what I want to be when I grow up is I want to own a basketball team. It's not easy uh, right now. What do you make of the season so far? Because there have been some twists and turns. Every year is the same way in the NBA. It's unbelievable how you start the year and everyone has a certain mindset or expectations and they change. Because the fact is that players get better, some get worse, some get older, you know, the younger ones are emerging and injuries happen. And so the truth is that every year is the same thing. You don't really know. And that's what makes it great. And this year, in the NBA anyway, unfortunately for us, <laughs> to some extent, we have a lot of injuries. But it's really exciting, I think, for the fans to know that you know, truthfully, there's nine or 10 teams that any one of them might win the title. That's exciting. Now, I'd rather be the prohibitive favorite <laughs> like we've been in previous years. I'd rather years. not have the injuries. <laughs> of course, I'd rather. But uh, it's sports and things happen and you have to adjust. Well, how does it affect the season, though? Steph Curry's out, what, for three months right now? Yes. You're up on your basketball, I uh, see. you know. He is. He's going to be out for three months. Clay Thompson's out for at least that, yeah. uh, recovering from his ACL. But more than that, every single player that was on our roster last year is either gone or injured right, right at this particular moment. Right. Now, it will improve. We're playing a lot of young guys. And I like to tell my guys, it's a, you know, I'm always positive. Everything's about you got to be positive. And I do believe there's silver linings in everything. And this in particular will allow us to develop our younger players. They're going to get a lot of time. They're going to get better. And we've got some really good ones. So from a standpoint of basketball, I think our fans understand it. They're going to be with us. And we're going to wind up being better uh, sorry, NBA. We're going to be better. We're actually going to be better when this is all over. Have to ask you about China, everything that happened with the NBA over there, the commissioner, LeBron, everything that happened. What happens next with the NBA in China? You know, I, <clears throat> I could comment on that more, but I'm not, <laughs> is the truth. Because I think uh, we have a commissioner that is really a great commissioner, maybe the best in all of sports. And he's on top of this, and he's concerned about it too, obviously. And He's uh, the one who's on the front lines dealing with these issues, and it's a very sensitive subject. It's something that uh, I don't think all of us really here, and the players, and even myself, can fully explain or understand. So I think it's going to work its way out. It's like everything else, and I think we'll get back to the place where we were before. That's, that's my, again, the optimist point of view. We're, we're talking with Joe Lakeup. We're going to continue our conversation on Bloomberg Radio. We're going to toss it back, though, to our folks on the TV side. Having said that, Joe, I just want to kind of push a little bit. Like, I do wonder what's the responsibility of, like, corporate leaders like yourself in terms of situations like what's going on in Hong Kong? I, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, I think people, corporate leaders have responsibility, certainly. But, you know, the truth is we have a business to run, too. And our job is not really at its most primary to, uh, to, to look at what's going on there from a 
political standpoint or to make decisions about that. Mm -hmm. Our job is to run our business. Now, we have to obviously take into account all of these kinds of social issues. They are important issues, but I don't think it's something that you know, I can change personally. Uh, I can only do the right things. And um, I think Adam and our league and everyone will figure this out. And so when you think about the NBA, you talked about uh, Adam Silver, and you talk about the NBA being a very successful league. There was a huge sort of player realignment uh, in, in a lot of ways, something we haven't seen uh, in, in many seasons. Why is it happening in basketball? Why is basketball having the moment that it's having maybe versus some other professional leagues who are who are actually declining in popularity. What are is you it? talking about? You said player realignment. I mean, just moving the teams. movement, uh, the free agency, yeah. the free agency like we've never right. seen. That's what I thought you were asking. Well, yeah. we have short term contracts. We have basically four year limits on yeah. the contracts. Baseball, you can sign a contract for 10 years. Yeah. Right. So I think that plays a role in all this. And so you we expected to have more movement, not as much as we expected or as we had last year. We did have a lot. In fact, the average NBA roster has, I think, 43% of its players from last year on its team this year. Huh. Think about that. Yeah. Under half. So a lot of change. But look, that's the system we are in, and I think it can be a good thing. And you go through cycles in yeah. these teams, and you have to plan forward. You're going to have a team maybe that you keep all your players and you build, and then you're going through cycles sometimes where you can't do that. Speaking of building, you got a new uh, um, stadium. Arena. Good. I know. Sorry about that. <laughs> but it's pretty amazing. Opened in September. And I'm just curious about the revenue streams that you anticipate getting out of that. Because yeah. from what I understand, you've signed up a lot of already multi-year deals for the yeah. building. Yeah, we have. And uh, look, we built it for a reason. Uh, we had the oldest arena in the NBA. The oldest. Yeah. 50 years. Yeah. And it had been remodeled once. But the truth is, we had one kitchen. I mean, you can't serve your customers with one kitchen and just expect to have wrong. quality food. So we have many, many more kitchens now. We have great food choices. We've gotten, I think the most important thing was to give our customers a great experience. I wish we were winning a little bit more so far this year, but that'll come. The truth is they're getting a great experience and they're in the great place. They're in San Francisco on the waterfront. And it's frankly the most expensive arena, not by choice, most expensive arena ever built, all with private funding. We're excited as hell to be able to open this this year and you should come and see it because it's it's pretty spectacular. So what are the, the revenue ex expectations out of it? Give me an idea. High. High. High relatively and we wouldn't have done it obviously if we had had not expected that. And even if you don't have a great season you think it'll be okay? Well we're locked in we have we're fortunate that we were when I say high we're we brought in a lot of revenue streams this year locked them in over 10-15 years most of our Contracts for suites and for sponsorships are 8 to 15 to even 20 years in length. Pretty nice visibility. Yeah, so we have a visibility on our revenues that is probably unlike most teams in all of sports. And uh, I think that's a good thing because it allows us to make sure we have a competitive team. Because at the end of the day, it's all about winning yeah. and making sure that our fans are treated well and that, that we win and we keep our players. And I know it's early in the season, so sorry. Right. <laughs> Valuation's still going up, you think, across the NBA. I mean, it's been unbelievable to see, you know, candidly, professional Investors, owners, yeah. operators come in. Is that just going to continue to bring them higher? The higher valuations go, the more professional the managers and investors must be because you're now shepherding a very expensive asset. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's a natural trend that's happened. When I uh, was involved in buying the team in 2010, you know, I went to in some investors for limited partners and some of them, frankly, turned me down. They said, oh, well, you know, this is a vanity investment. Right. Or, well, they thought you were overpaying. Well, they did. And it was the highest price ever yeah. paid uh, at the time for right. an NBA team. 
But the truth is I had looked at the prior 25 to 30 years and seen an average rate of return that was 13% compounded annually. That's not bad, yeah. right. that's pretty good. And because you have a limited asset, you have something that is unusual and it's live content, those things are more, they're more true today than they were then. Well, that team you paid, what, half a billion is now worth about 3.5 according to Forbes, yeah. I think one of the estimates. So not a bad return. Uh, I'll let others judge what it's right. worth. I think it's worth more than that. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. What a treat. Uh, graduate of this fine institution yes. in 1983, owner of the Golden State Warriors, among many things. Thank you. August Wilda is Stanford Graduate School of Business, class of 1975. She's vice chair at the San Francisco-based First Republic Bank, uh, the publicly held regional bank serving coastal, urban, and affluent markets. She's been at the bank for a long time, really got it to where it is today. And she joins us here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business in Palo Alto. So nice to have you with us. Delighted to be here. Tell us about your time at Stanford. And I, I'm curious about, you know, how easily you felt accepted as a woman, I think, you know, pursuing an MBA, what the environment was like. Take us back there, if you would. Well, it was 1975. I was a class of, we were a class of 60 women out of uh, 300 students, so 20%. Prior years had been 4, 10, 20, 30, and then 60. So we were a big class of women. Yeah. And it stayed at that level for a very long time. So women were, for the first time, a presence here, but it was a very beginning of it, and I, it was before women knew they could do whatever they wanted. So it was, we were certainly accepted, but I will Did say- Did you feel like an equal as a student here? Absolutely, Yeah, absolutely. There were, however, very few women guest speakers in classes. There were, I only think I had one female professor. One woman ever was a guest speaker in a class, but there weren't, there wasn't the bench to choose from. So fast forward Good to point. today, you're obviously incredibly involved. I shouldn't say obviously, you are very involved uh, in the school. What have you done and, and how have you sought to sort of change that? Because 2019, very different world and, and Stanford is, is known for having a more mm -hmm. diverse student body at this point. Well, in terms of women, this is now, we have now 47% in the class. Right. A group of us began about 15 years ago working with the admissions office to interview women and to help recruit those women who would have long careers and who would be the future leaders of America and the world. And I think some of that was helpful. I think when we started that, we were at 31%, we're now 47%. So we've worked very hard to both interview, recruit, talk to women who are considering coming to Stanford or other places and telling them why this is such a great place to be. In, in terms of other diversity, about 10 years ago, I taught, I was a guest speaker in a class. Uh, I've done it for about 10 years for a professor. And I was stunned to see the diversity in the class, the number of international students, the ethnicities, the gender mix was totally different than when I was here. So this is a class of mixed from all over the world, from all genders, from all, all ethnicities. And I think it's great because these different people are learning together and showing each other different experiences that they will go and take back to whatever they do next. Agreed, and we know all the studies about having diversity, whether it's you know throughout your employee base, your you know senior executive levels, as well as your boards and your C-suite. One thing I want to ask you, and I was doing some research, um, in terms of women MBAs, women with MBAs earn 63% or more with an MBA, but still not as much as men. Why is that still around? Why is that? We're improving the pipeline. There's almost parity in terms of the number of students here. Why doesn't it carry over? 
on all levels when we hit into like kind of the corporate well, world? Well, there's been a lot of studies on this and I'm, I'm not the expert on it, but I think uh, in some cases, women may not have as many opportunities because people tend to promote people who are more like them. Mm. And so until people are running those corporations, they may not be as obvious. When women wind up on corporate governance committees, there generally winds up being more women on boards. So it's a matter of looking around and saying, am I comfortable with this person? And some of us look different. Yeah. And so I think the more women get to the top, the more women will be throughout the pipeline, and the less they will be paid unequally uh, and have unequal amounts of positions. But it's going to still take time. The other thing is, uh, some women, for one reason or other, may not decide to go for it. And you have to be pretty committed, uh, whomever you are, if you want to get to the top. It has to be a very core goal. One of the things I did when I was here, I felt so lucky to be here. I felt like I had wound up in a place that was going to change my life. And I wanted to be a beacon, an example for other women. I think many of us felt that way. And so I always had in my mind that that was one of my objectives. Uh, some women saw that and copied us, some didn't. I think it will still take more time. I think Dean Levin's focus on this is probably going to help a lot. Um, but we have to help women understand that they can do it. They have to ask for what they want. They have to speak up. And they have to move on if they're not going to get it in their existing company. So let's talk a little bit about the world at large, because at First Republic, you have the privilege and, and the opportunity to speak to CEOs around the world. Your customers are well healed in, in many cases. How are they feeling about the economy right now? Because honestly, I feel like we get a lot of mixed signals from the data and from various uh, folks that we hear, whether it's on earnings calls or just anecdotally. What are you hearing? Well, here we sit on a day when the indexes, indices are reaching market highs and everybody is nervous. Our clients are nervous, the press is nervous. Everyone is nervous because of some things that are real, some that are not. They're nervous because it's a 10-year bull market and we think there are cycles and don't think it can go on. But they're also nervous because they're concerned about the China trade problems, they're concerned about Brexit, they're concerned about America's relationships with its traditional allies, they're concerned about climate change, they're concerned about issues of inequality and housing shortages, and those things, all told, create problems for people. And technically, whenever you have an inverted yield curve, it usually says a recession is coming. Right. So that's always been a signal. We have that some days recently. And so that's making people more nervous from a technical point of view. Yet here we go, sit here, and the market is again at an all-time high. So I think our clients are at best cautiously optimistic. Right, all right. Well, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Catherine August DeWilda, MBA 75, a trailblazer in many ways and a great window into not just this place, but the world at large. Talk about a local boy or an alum made good. John Donahoe, he's the CEO of ServiceNow. He ran eBay, he's on the board of PayPal, and now he's got a new job. He's going to be the CEO of Nike. We were able to catch up with him ahead of our trip out here. Here's what he had to say. It was really, I think, probably the most formative experience I had that has set me up for not just my career, but to be honest, my, my overall life over the last 30 years. Um, I distinctly remember uh, many of my professors as well as my classmates. 
and what Stanford really, really, you know, grounded me in was this notion of servant leadership. Um, it was a phrase I first heard at Stanford. It resonated with me. Ernie Arbuckle had been a former dean of Stanford, and that's where the phrase came from. And if I were to say there's been one foundational, foundational almost guiding principle for the last, you know, 35 years since then, it's been a real uh, inspiration and attraction toward this notion of servant leadership. Well, and there are so many full circle elements to this, and we're going to get to them throughout the conversation, one of them being the Phil Knight Business School. But you were the winner, I believe, of the Arbuckle mm -hmm. Award. So clearly, uh, whatever you learned there really took root. I mean, when you go there in the 80s, Silicon Valley is certainly developed and developing a far cry from, from where it is now. Why did you go west in the first place? You know, I, I, I went to Dartmouth College undergrad. I was fortunate enough as a senior in college to apply to a few different business schools. I was fortunate enough to get in. But I knew I wanted to go to Stanford because Stanford, as a, as a, senior, in high, a senior in college, rather, in 1982, it was known for teamwork. Um, it was known for working with and through others. And that was really attractive to me. I'd played sports my whole life. I loved team sports. I had not yet been in business, but I knew that a team approach was what I wanted to do. And that was a reputation Stanford had. I'd never lived in California. So I, I joined Bain for two years uh, with the agreement that I was going to, going to Stanford in 1984. And when I came out, I certainly wasn't disappointed. I took a lot of classes at Stanford that were about the human side of management, about the inner journey of leadership not just accounting and marketing and finance. And so in, in Stanford, it was very legitimate to talk about things like the inner journey of leadership, talk about your personal and professional life and how to build an integrative life. And so at a very young age and a very impressionable stage in my life, I feel like what I got from Stanford is those things were, not only were they legitimate, they were the best way to lead a fulfilling and hopefully impactful life. So let's go back to, to the mid 80s. When you come out, how does all of that inform the choices you make about the career you wanna have and where you wanna have it? During my first year at, at Stanford Business School, my wife applied to law school and she got in. And so during the beginning of my second year, which was gonna be her first year at Stanford Law School, we had a one-year-old child. I went to the dean of, uh, the dean of students um, student affairs at Stanford Business School, Jerry Gould, and I said, Dean Gould, I have to take next year off or I have to work part-time because we have a one-year-old, we can't both be in graduate school at the same time. And this is classic Stanford. She says, Dean Gould says, oh, John, no, just do this. Go ahead and start. And, you know, if you want to take three classes instead of four, that's fine. Maybe start with four. If you want to drop one, that's fine. And we'll be flexible. You don't have to, you don't have to come in with some preordained plan. Well, what she did is she gave me permission to have an open mind and a mind that said, hey, it was legitimate what my wife was doing and the fact we had a kid as well as going to business school. As it worked out, I started that second year, um, started with four classes, thought I was going to drop one, never ended up dropping one and ended up graduating on time. But Stanford, both institutionally through the dean and just the culture, gave me permission to have the fact that I was a father, the fact that I was married to uh, someone who was a peer and had a dual career, that was legitimate. Right. And so ironically, I ended up following my wife when I went to Bain um, uh, thereafter. And 
you know, that ended up working out okay. I ended up staying 17 years at Bain. Who would have figured at that time? We got to talk about your new job. You're moving to Portland to become the CEO of Nike. You've served on the board there. Why take this job now? Why bring it full circle, uh, as you say, with uh, your esteemed history at the Phil Knight Business School and now working for the company that Phil Knight created? I, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to meet Phil 20 years ago and Mark Parker, uh, Nike's CEO. And I've always deeply resonated with Nike's purpose, um, which is, you know, bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Asterisk around athlete. If you have a body, you are an athlete. Hmm. And to me, that's around human potential. It speaks to each person on this planet around the potential they have within them. And sport is, sport is a very powerful institution in our world right now. A lot of our other institutions are falling down. They're polarizing, whether it's you know, government or politics. Sport is something that brings people together. It brings people together on a level playing field within countries and across countries. And so the, the purpose of Nike and the role and impact it does and can have in the world is just something that has, I've always admired deeply. It's always spoken to me. I was privileged enough to be serve on the board the last five years. And when Mark and Phil and the board uh, invited me to have this opportunity to become CEO, it almost felt like um, a calling and a, and, a, and a cause that I had to pursue. And very much along the lines of what we've been talking about in this conversation, Nike's at the epicenter of many things and I think has had a track record of playing a very positive role, not just with its athletes and customers and consumers, but also in the broader society. And, and so I um, I'm feel very privileged and honored to, to have the opportunity to serve, continue my, my, my quest of servant leadership by serving the employees and customers and athletes and society around Nike. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. And that is John Donahoe, currently the CEO of ServiceNow, a graduate of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, headed to a new job a little bit north of here up in Portland, Oregon, a, a dream job, I would imagine, for him and for yeah. many people, and taking over at Nike at a really important time, to say the least. So steeped in areas of diversity, organizational behavior, and more, Sarah Soule is the Moorgridge, let me get it right, Professor of Organizational Behavior. She's a Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So nice to have you here with Jason and me. Thank you for opening us up to your home. Yes, thank you, Carol. <laughs> thank you, Jason. It's great to have you here. We were thinking about all of the headlines today um, and in terms of what's going on at companies. How do you pull in the headlines? Like we have the McDonald's CEO being fired today. We have Under Armour being looked at to, into for the last couple of years in terms of accounting concerns. But how do you pull in what's in the headlines into your teachings? That's a great question. And one of the things that is sort of distressing, of course, about many of these headlines is that it actually allows us, we, we hear about them, but it allows us wonderful learning opportunities in the classroom, particularly these days when we're bringing more and more about diversity, equity, and inclusion into all of our classes. Having these examples, these real-life examples that our students have read about and are experiencing allows us to think and, and, and work with them to think about ways that they would better handle such situations and allows us to really 
train them to be better principled and purposeful leaders. So while they're distressing to hear about, it allows us a lot of wonderful learning opportunities to learn from, learn from failure. Right. Right. And so what are students expecting in this regard that maybe they didn't expect 5, 10, 20 years ago? What are they expecting to learn? Where are they pushing you? This is a, another great question, Jason. Our students have changed a lot over the last 10 or 15 years, as you've probably heard about. Our students have come of age in a very different era than certainly I did and certainly many of our past students did. And they've come of age on college campuses where their undergraduate professors, their undergraduate peers are talking about issues of, of diversity, about equity, inclusion, corporate social responsibility. And so they come to us as learners who have already been, already been exposed to some of these pressing issues. And they come to us hoping that we will give them answers and that we will be able to train them to become better leaders, well, purposeful. I, I gotta say, I, I do wonder about what the student body thinks because, right, all of, I feel like, global corporations are talking about the importance of diversity and, the, you know, how it's just better for so many different reasons. So I'm just curious, does the student body think that the corporate world is doing enough? Because um, there's so much mm. conversation, but, you know, some of the numbers are getting better, but I still think people think that there could be much more significant improvements. Mm -hmm. And I uh, think that, I think that's kind of mixed. I mean, I think that there's, you know, I, I tend to be an optimist and I sort of tend to point to the real wins that we see in right. many many companies, uh, and I, but I also believe in transparency and I believe in making sure that companies are uh, able to, to tell us what they're doing so that we can do better. And I think our students really come to us believing that they can make positive change in the world and that they want to make positive change in the world. So I already said I was an optimist, but, but uh, I, I really believe this now. So it's wonderful to see our students asking us and pushing us as professors, pushing us as leaders of the GSB to teach them the skills, the competencies, and the values that they need to lead better more, um, organizations, lead into the future. So talk to us about some of your work, especially around social movements, because I find that so fascinating, especially given where we're sitting right now, in the heart of Silicon Valley, when there are big, this is my favorite word, existential questions <laughs> around technology, around humanity, around our responsibility yeah. to each other. How do you, what, or I guess I should say, what do you make of the last couple of years of social movements? Mm -hmm. You know, whether mm -hmm. it's around climate change, whether it's around Me Too, like, what, describe the moment where we are from your perspective. I think we are in an incredible moment where there's a lot of mobilization. I mean, think not just here in Silicon Valley, but we've all been watching the news in various countries. Hong Kong, we've been watching Hong Kong, Lebanon, um, Chile, and, and I think what we're seeing is what in social movements parlance we call a wave of protest or a cycle of protest. And that is that people are coming together and learning from one another and are not content to just let discontent be the norm. So we're, but we're also, I think, at a point where many of our company leaders, many of our uh, leaders of, of, of not just companies, but many government leaders are, are open to and willing to change. And so we're at a moment right now where I think there's openness to learning from what it is that people, activists, want. At the same time, a willingness to work with and collaborate with activists 
both at companies, but I think also in, in some of the um, some of the nations. Well, we've been having some of the conversations, certainly with some of the alum from the school, but it's interesting, and I do wonder whether the student body base, like just looking at what's going on in Hong Kong and China, right? There's just so much yes. tension right now, and you know, there's pressure on some of the corporations that they should be standing up, and then there are leaders who are kind of backing down in the corporate world because they want to be in those markets, and there's the belief if you're in the market, you can be a much better facilitator facilitator of change. Yes. So I just curious what the students push back on and say, well, wait a minute, that hasn't worked so far. Mm, yes, and I think that that's, this is an age-old you know, age debate about whether we should be engaging in, um, yeah. in, comp in countries that um, have, for example, very poor, um, uh, poor records of human rights, and should we be engaged? Can, can our, our businesses, can our presence actually make a positive change? And you know, the truth is on that, the research is quite mixed. Mm -hmm. and, and the more that we learn about the presence of uh, companies in some of these nations, the better equipped we are to advise our students, and the better equipped we are, I think, as a university to take a stance on some of these issues. And so what we need to do, I think, as academics, and this falls on us, is do a better job of assessing under what conditions will company presence or university presence make improvements and when won't it. Right. So what really make makes choices. a difference, right? Absolutely. Yes. Not everything. And that's our role as academics. Yeah. What a treat to catch up with you, and thank you for being such a gracious host for us uh, here at the Graduate School of Business, Sarah Soule. She is the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, author of two recent books, and I'm so glad we got to talk about them a little bit, Contention and Corporate Social Responsibility, and a second called A Primer on Social Movements. Very, very timely That's what in a I was lot thinking. of ways. Very, very timely. You're Well, yes, indeed. Bloomberg Business Week naming Stanford the number one U.S. business school in a 2019-2020 MBA ranking. And that's exactly where Jason Kelly and I find myself on this lovely Monday. Let's get into it, though, because there's a lot of work that goes into it. Let's uh, catch up with uh, a couple of our editors, our Bloomberg News senior editor, Caleb Solomon. He joins us from our Boston uh, bureau. And also with us is our Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber. He's back in our New York studio. So, um... I got to start with you, Joel, first of all. I know there's a lot of work goes into it. We know in talking to the alumni that everybody looks for these rankings. Um, talk to us a little bit about it. Yeah, and it's the 31st year that Business Week has, has done uh, a business school ranking. But really, we... we uh we, we started from scratch almost a, a, a year ago uh, to basically reimagine what the business school ranking could be. And, and Caleb gets big props for being one of the architects of that. And we really tried to lean into where we thought a, a ranking of this variety could go. And so much of that has been, let's actually lean into the networks and the students and the alumni and actually start asking questions to them about their experiences. And that's what really makes this ranking be so definitive. It's very interactive, so you can actually customize the ranking based on what you're what you're interested in, and that's um, I, you know I just hats off uh, to Caleb as being one of the architects for it. So so Caleb, when you look at this year versus last year or even years before, what what are some of the distinguishing things that jump out at you? You know, thanks, Joel, for all that. You know, so. You're, you you nailed what we what we were what we're all trying to do here, which is to really personalize these rankings. So I mean, if you're looking at a school, you know, uh, one of the top tier schools, say in the on the West Coast, it doesn't matter to you where Harvard and MIT in are on our list. So.
So <clears throat> we give you the ability to really personalize this based on your scores, the region that you're interested in, the, the industries that you want to work in, and really create your own customized ranking. And all of the tools that we built to do that, we made them so much better this year. The personalization, this ability to sort of create your short list along the way that provides all of the comparisons of the amazing data we have. It's all at your fingertips. It's all shareable. You can send it to friends. You can send it elsewhere. Th those are some of the biggest changes we made. And talk to us about how right. Stanford uh, got the trophy. Stanford just came out number one in a couple of our big indexes in compensation. Stanford was number one tied with Wharton. In you know, so that's that's one of the key measures for business school. You know, how much do you make when you get out of school? What do, what are alumni making five, six, seven years after they're in after they've left school? And the other big uh, index that mattered a lot to Stanford was entrepreneurship, where again they came out number one. So with number one place on those two indexes, that pushed them right to the top. Carol, Jason, I'm like looking at you right, Caleb. from here and I'm like, you guys are in, in, in Stanford at Stanford right now. Like what do, what have you guys been hearing out there? What's the, what's been interesting? Well, everybody knows they're the champs uh, out here. I mean, listen, this is this school is unbelievable in a lot of ways when you, you know, we've gotten a chance to talk to a lot of the alum as well as the students you know the people who come here it's a very diverse student body uh, they spend a lot of time thinking about that in terms of who they recruit but also who's teaching and what they teach uh, Caleb I did want to ask you because it did come up in some of our conversations here number two with a bullet tuck coming in making totally a big true. move uh, talk to us about that yeah that really that really jumped out to all of us um, so Tuck did pretty well last year on compensation. And this is Tuck at Dartmouth. Exactly, Dartmouth in Hanover, New Hampshire, um, near, near where I live. And so, um, but what they really came out, they, they surged in the networking index. And the, our networking index is, you know, how much do alumni interact with students? How much do alumni help other alums get jobs? What's kind of the halo, the impact of, like, when you go looking for a job, how much does having, the, you know, telling people that you came from Tuck, or as they like to call them, a Tucky, how much does that matter? And... Um, I think we got a lot better response this year from both uh, the alumni classes that we surveyed as well as the graduating students where they must have had a much, much, much better experience with uh, other with alums than they did in uh, the past year. What else stood out for you guys in this year's survey? What 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 stood out is just the range of responses we get. So the way we broke it down is, um, you know, so in entrepreneurship, while Stanford comes out number one, Babson, a school that overall is ranked lower than Stanford, came out number two in entrepreneurship. Uh, the University of Maryland uh, came out number five. The, the Salt Lake City School, Utah, the Utah School, uh, Eckley School in Utah um, came out number six. So it's, it's finding these gems in specific areas that may interest you, where you just, you know, you don't think of these schools necessarily as bastions of entrepreneurship, but they're really teaching people how to do well in this field, and, and we're bringing that information out to people. And, and Carol, the, one of the things that I like about it is it's not just this copy and paste thing where you get the exact same ranking more or less every year, right? The the way that it's been constructed is that different schools can actually really succeed, and like that's what I love about this is like you have Stanford, which repeats. Yeah starting to look like a powerhouse and yet out of nowhere comes Dartmouth surging up the ranking. It's like March Madness, you know, only in, you know, November. Yeah.
Yeah, no, it's really amazing. There was a lot of movement uh, on the list this week. Worth checking out for sure. Caleb Solomon, the architect, as Joel Weber said, of this ranking. Joel Weber, the editor of Business Week. Thank you both so much. So Jason, the luxury space continues to get disrupted in so many different ways. Playing into that is Senrive. It's a direct-to-consumer brand that sells luxury handbags. Carl Chung is the founder and CEO of the company, graduated with an MBA from Stanford in 2011, and she's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Coral, nice to have you here with us. We've been asking all of the Stanford alum, tell us a little, a little bit about your time here uh, at the school and getting your MBA here. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I miss the sunshine from California, though, while I'm out in New York today. Um, <laughs> although, should, although I love beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful fall weather in New York. Um, nothing to complain about there. Um, so I started SunRev. Actually, the concept of SunRev was really formed while I was still at Stanford. Um, and it's, it's a... It's a very exciting place because I found myself being able to explore things and really discover my true passions during my two years there. And while I was there, uh, I was part of a student group that led something called the Lux Trek, where we went to Milan and Florence and Paris and London and met with different top luxury brands. Uh, and it was an incredibly inspiring experience for me. And through that, I started to think about if I were to start a luxury brand someday, what would that look like? How would it be, how would it be disruptive and differentiated? And it was really during that time that direct-to-consumer as a model started to emerge, uh, as well as digitally native brands. And I felt like it was a perfect time in the marketplace to start a company like Senrev. And so three years ago, uh, SendRev was launched, and now we've been growing very rapidly over the past three years um, and actually just closed our Series A, which was announced earlier today. Right, yeah, so a big Series A, 16.75 million, I believe. Uh, so what does that allow you to do at this point? With that money, where does it go next? It's an incredible setup for us to have resources to expand. So up until now, we've been run very much in a scrappy bootstrap way. And as with every great Silicon Valley startup, the company started actually in my garage and basement. And it's hard to believe that only a year and a half ago, we moved out into a real space. And now we have a flagship store in San Francisco, um, as well as a big fulfillment center in South San Francisco. But the capital really is to allow us to expand both our product assortment and expand into other categories beyond the handbag category, as well as grow geographically. We've shipped to over 200 countries globally, and we're doing a big expansion in Asia, um, and that's a, a huge area of opportunity for us from a growth perspective. And we're also growing partnerships. We've launched partnerships with Neiman Marcus, with Nordstrom, as well as uh, recently with Apple stores globally. We're in some of the top Apple stores around the world, including Hong Kong IFC, Singapore Orchard Road, uh, Paris, London, etc. cetera. Uh, so we are starting to establish ourselves as a global brand, which is very, very exciting. So, and does part of that expansion, Coral, ultimately, and one of the conversations we've been having about is, you know, do companies still want to go public at some point? Like, what's the long game for you folks as you grow the business, develop partnerships? Just got about 40 seconds left. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think at Stanford, one of the things that I was very inspired by was this idea to really 
uh, put away the fear, put away the caution, put caution to the wind and just go for it. And I think um, when I made the decision to start this company, it was very much about going big and disrupting the luxury goods industry and establishing a global iconic brand. And so that's what we're absolutely set out to do, which is a uh, very exciting and and we have an amazing institutional investor that is backing us and all the right ingredients to take the company to the next level all right well congratulations on the big round we're excited to see what happens next have you back uh, to talk about more success coral chung mba 11 from here at the sanford graduate school of business All right, well that is the Stanford fight song and we're here at the number one business school in the country. Delighted to have with us Brian Lowry. He is Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Graduate School of Business. Great to see you. Great to see you too. All right, so you are right in the middle of what I think is one of the most fascinating topics right now for business people, certainly business students, and that is this intersection of society and business, mm. the role that businesses play in the world. What's your take at this moment? How do you approach your class differently maybe in 2019? Because it's on everyone's mind. Yeah, I think in the school, it's on the school's mind. The, really, the idea of business is shifting, right? It's not just about how do we perform well in the existing paradigm. It's what is the new paradigm going to be? And so we really here are about helping our students um, become prepared for this new world, to participate in it, and to shape the rules that are going to come into play, right? So things are changing, and we really want our students to be prepared for that change. Yeah, I do wonder about what they see as their role, because we feel like, you know, our policymakers have failed us in kind of, you know, bringing about change, necessary change, whether it's inequalities in our society, whether it's climate change. What are the kind of conversations you're having with students about what they want to know about, because they're preparing for going out into the corporate world? Right, so our students recognize that the distinction between private industry and the public civil society world is that that distance is shrinking. Yeah. And so they really care a lot about these big social issues and we're trying to prepare them to engage in an effective way. So what they really think a lot about is how as a business leader would I interact productively with government, right? How do I think about civil society? How do I think about issues like privacy? Right, so our students really are bringing those concerns to the classroom. They're asking those kind of questions. And the faculty are more and more responding in ways that allow the students to go out there and become a, a different type of leader, I believe. You know, for a long time, it feels like a, a business school curriculum would look at a lot of what we talk about now is sort of soft skills and uh, there's a great uh, sort of nickname for one of the classes that you guys teach here. It's called Touchy Feely. Uh, interpersonal <laughs> Dynamics is I believe the actual name of the course. This is something you've been doing for a long time. It feels like you were ahead of the curve to say the least, but how do you teach it? Like what, what does that actually look like when you're teaching people to essentially be, for lack of a better term, better humans? Uh-huh. So what we do is we give people the opportunity to practice, right? So it's not, on, I mean, we all know how to be human beings, at least I hope so. Right, and so I we don't put. Know about that. <laughs> I don't know about we that. work on Wall Street. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So we put them in groups, and this is the the group is really where a lot of the work happens. We give them the opportunity to be open and honest with each other. Like we often in life don't have many opportunities to get real feedback. Right? How am I showing up? How is it affecting you? 
and our students have the chance to really open up and engage with each other, get hard feedback sometimes. So there's often tears, right? right? Because oh, it's, there's yeah. this deep connection, this vulnerability that allows people to make sense of themselves in a different way. And for many people, um, they, they, it's an um, epiphany to, to see themselves and to see how they're being responded to by others. It really can be quite transformative, the class. I mean, I do wonder what Stanford thinks about, is there a responsibility in terms of, you know, creating the next group of corporate leaders, um, especially in an environment where I feel like many think that there isn't accountability yeah. for things. Although, I've got to say, <laughs> I feel like the headlines, like there is some today accountability on, today. Yes. But yeah. I do wonder, you know, what you see as your role. Yeah. I think when we talk about leaders now, and especially the kind of leaders that we bring here, these people, the students are incredible, right? They've done incredible things, and we bring them here to leverage what they've done and to improve so they can go out and have an effect on the world. So I think it's really critical, and we really impress upon them the importance of being concerned about how their actions not affect only their career, but the other people. So when they make decisions from these positions of power, leaders affect many others' lives, right? And so not losing sight of the effect they have on others is a critical part of what we really try to push here for students. There, on the one side you have humanity, but you also have technology, you know, here in Silicon Valley, and it also feels like we're asking really big questions about the role of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your dean, your boss told us earlier that Washington seemed very far away when he got here 20 years ago. It's pretty close now, at yeah. least. Uh, philosophically and, uh, and figuratively, how does technology help instead of hinder your goals? Good question. So I think of technology obviously as simply a tool, right? In the end, it's a tool in service of humanity. And so I think it helps our goals when people understand it as such. When they say, like, what are we trying to achieve? Like, so if we're trying to reduce, for example, uh, loneliness, there's a a sense that there's an increasing separation among people independent of all the technology that we have. There's still something going on that people aren't connecting. And the way we use technology has maybe increased that or um, been a part of that. But we can also think about how we might use that tool to produce a different outcome, right? When we think deeply about the role of the tool and not lose sight of it as a tool, then we can achieve all sorts of positive outcomes as well. Ryan, what does your student base, just quickly, just got about 40 seconds, think about technology? Because I think of the uh. privacy concerns, we see bias in AI. I mean, there's a lot of problems out here. Do they think ultimately technology is good or it can be better? Just kind of quickly. Um, very quickly, I think they're optimistic, but we also now see clearly the potential problems associated with technology and we need to solve for that. Yeah, right. yeah. We're going to leave it there. Brian Lowry, great to catch up with you. Congratulations on being number one uh, again. And you really are at the core of, I think, what all of us are talking about as business people, as business leaders, and certainly politicians. Uh, it is on the minds of this next generation coming up. It'll be interesting to see what the product of this phenomenal campus teaches us uh, as they go forward. As we said, we want to get right to some students, Stanford Graduate School of Business students, uh, and we have two with us. They're both in their second year here at Stanford. Emily Nunez Kavnes and Pulkit Agarwal are both, as I mentioned, in the program. So nice to have you here with us. We love getting all of the different perspectives. Why Stanford? And Emily, Emily, let me start with you. Well, thank you so much for having us. I, for me, I knew Stanford really was the best business school in the world and is. And I know it's really so well positioned for leaders who want to become really strong leaders in fields like entrepreneurship, innovation, and technology. So leadership was a really important thing. How about for you, Pulkit? Well, so I'm an engineer by background, and so I remember this we time... We both have dads that, that are engineers. Oh, super. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, so I did an invention competition in undergrad, and they asked me, what's your business plan? And I said, word of mouth. And so I realized I think business would be actually pretty beneficial for me in, in entrepreneurship as well. So that's, that's sort of what led the spark to do my MBA. And so, Emily, tell us about your company, uh, Sword and Plow, because it's such a cool concept that everybody can understand. It comes in part from what you did before. You were in the Army. Tell us about the inspiration and what it is. Yes. A former U.S. Army captain, <laughs> among other accolades. <laughs> well, thank you. So, uh, eight years ago, I started a, a social enterprise called Sword and Plow with my sister. And we work with veteran-owned American manufacturers across the country to make bags and accessories, um, such which is this necklace, which is made out of a repurposed... Do you have a bag next to you? I do. You can grab it. I you do. Grab it. So this is one, and then uh, we also have leather goods as and well. And is this military-grade materials, from what I understand, some of it? Yes, some of it. So we incorporate yeah. repurposed military surplus, um, like this lining, uh, as well as the uh, 50 caliber machine um, shells, which are in all of our jewelry. Wow. And they're all made by veteran-owned American manufacturers, and we donate 10% of our profits to veteran nonprofit organizations. It's an amazing, I mean, we've been looking at right. some of the products. It's really incredible. Yeah. So, so Pulkit, give us a sense of, of what it's like to be a student here, especially at a time where there's a lot expected and a lot of big questions about businesses right now. I think we would all love to sort of be in your classroom in some ways because the you guys are asking right? big questions. How do you characterize it? Yeah, what's, what's actually really interesting about Stanford is that they really bring out the authenticity within you and all the education that's given you is sort of surrounded around who you are and staying true to yourself, but then also being good at business. And the cool thing is not only are you in the business school at Stanford, but you're also part of Stanford as a whole. And there's amazing classes and things outside as well they can use to supplement your education. That's what's interesting. We heard that from some of the administration, from the dean of the school, that the importance of, it's not just about the Graduate School of Business, but integrating it among all of the other schools that are here and getting kind of a more holistic education to some extent, right? Definitely. I feel the same way. I, the two most interesting classes that I'm taking or have taken in the past are making social ventures happen, which is an amazing way to learn more about systems thinking right. and draw on my experiences as a social entrepreneur. But then right now I'm taking a class across the street at the law school about regulating AI and it has just been fascinating. And the access that we have to cutting edge thinkers in the tech field is, um, is amazing. And so Pukit, what do you think about the impact of the MBA on, on the choices that you make going from here? Like, what do you do next? Not to put too much- Well, wait, right. have we even, because you've got a company too, right? Is right, well, block so, hire? yes, yeah, exactly. I started a recruiting agency for the blockchain space right. uh, before business school. And so now I'm thinking of going to, to, to Singapore. The biggest thing about Stanford is it opens so many more doors. And so the first thing that people think about is, oh my gosh, there's now so many options. I have to now think about which option to consider. And so that takes two years on its own. And so I think I'm closer towards the end of that process, but I think I want to go to Singapore and start a company there. Well, and it's interesting too, because I do think about some of the really important issues that we spend a lot of time talking about um, and how the graduate programs, including Stanford, are bringing them into it, whether it's climate change, whether it's diversity. Tell me a little bit about you know, some of the discussions that you want to be having, because you think it's obviously going to be something that you're going to be carrying with you once you leave. Tell me a little bit about that, Pulkit. Yeah, one of the biggest things for me is I think that culture within a company is going to become more and more important. Mm -hmm. The more we go from data and information can all be done by computers, the, the aspect that people are going to bring that's going to be different is who they are and what kind of person they are. And we're seeing more of that, you know, coming from the manufacturing, just people are machines, to now 
big companies are focusing on their people culture and these new roles are coming up. And so I really want to be part of that. And I think I want to do a bit of that in the recruiting space or the people operations space in Singapore. And so Emily, uh, do you plan to expand your company even further? Another company uh, on the horizon? What are you up to? <laughs> yes, well, I, I've definitely been busy and um, Sword and Plow has a lot of exciting things coming up, including a, a really large collaboration with a publicly traded accessories com company coming out this Veterans Day. And being here at Stanford has just been incredible to really dive deeper into social entrepreneurship and learn about other fields too, like technology and increasingly some of the issues around um, cultural and social issues that these companies are wrestling God, with. I feel like such a low achiever. <laughs> what have we done with our lives, I don't Carol? know. I don't know. Anyway, we wish you both good luck and thank you so much for talking uh, to us. I have a quick question, five seconds each. Do you think politicians and CEOs should use social media to communicate? <laughs> well, quickly. <laughs> I think as a social entrepreneur, social media has been a great way to get our message so out we're there. So we going to take a yes pull kit? People are looking on social media, so yeah. if you want to communicate, social media is an option. All right. right. Good to great know, stuff. right? Emily Nunez, Kavnes, and Pulkit Agarwal, two second years here at the number one business school in the country. Thank you so much. Well, our next guest is a Stanford alum, class of 1989, got his MBA then. He gave the commencement speech last year. He's the head of the leading global brewer. Uh, it's a big name, AB InBev. We're talking about Carlos Brito. Yeah, a great conversation with him and his story, his journey here is where we started and it's a good one. Take a listen. When I was applying to business school, I was in Brazil. Brazil was a very close country in those days. Everything was difficult. Nobody would travel abroad. They didn't send any money abroad to pay for fees to, to apply to a college in, in the U.S. It was a big deal. We had to know somebody in the U.S. and all that. So I started researching, and back then, Business Week had a ranking of business schools, and Stanford was number one. So I set so you my really eyes. you looked at the magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah that, that was our Bible, yeah. you know, the ranking. So I looked at it and said, hey, yeah, I'm going to apply to those schools, but Stanford for sure is number one. And at the time, Stanford would take only one Brazilian per year. And it did, it did that through the 80s, through the 90s. And um, I said, oh, well, we'll apply. Long story short, I was accepted. And then I had to fight for scholarship because my, my parents didn't have that, that kind of money to send me to school. So... And then I went to Stanford Business School, and uh, it changed my life. Wait, you got to talk about the financing to get there. Well, it was interesting because I got a, a scholarship from the Rotary Association, but they didn't cover Stanford. So at the end, Ro Rotary Club. Yeah. So at the end, when I went, when I got, got accepted to Stanford in the last round of acceptances, I tried to change the scholarship. They said, no, we don't cover Stanford. So long story short, there was a businessman in Brazil that had a boutique investment bank called Jorge Paulo Lemon one of the top guys today in the world of business. Yeah. And uh, I knew that he had a bank that would give loans to some of the bank employees that were pursuing an MBA abroad. I was not one of them, I worked for Shell Oil. But because I was the Brazilian accepted Stanford that year, I decided to make my case, and he decided to pay for my first year. Not out of the bank pockets, but out of his own pocket, because I was not an employee of the bank. Yeah. So I went to Stanford because of him. And uh, it was interesting because he asked three things of me when I went. It said, first, keep in touch. Second, before you accept any full-time job offer when you're done with Stanford, talk to me first. No obligation to come work for me. And third, help somebody as I'm helping you in the future if you can. Pay it forward. Yeah, so that was it. So I always say that his financial generosity got me to Stanford. Right. But it was this time and commitment to me that got me 
through Stanford. Because that's a different way to go to school in, in many ways. Yes. You know, some people have their parents, you know, sort of lording over them, but other people, you know, they're just sort of left to their own devices. Sort of having him sitting on your shoulder must have given yeah, you a different perspective. Exactly, because he was my sponsor for the first year. Then I had to figure out how to pay for the second year, which was also part of his education in terms of me not getting everything for free. So, yes, you got the scholarship for the first year. But guess what? Second year, you have to figure it out. So I had a good summer job. I also, at the end, got a scholarship from the Brazilian government, and I was able to conclude the second year. So that was part of the education. Now talk about the education at Stanford, what that experience was like. You know, for me, it transformed the way I view the world. It was a very international place in the Pacific Rim, so very open to the world, as even in those days. It was also a place where I learned the, the value of talent. I was surrounded by the best people in the world, pretty much, at that age group, Mm -hmm. with that kind of orientation, businesses. And I had to up my game. I used to be the top students, uh, always top of my class in Brazil. When I went to Stanford, I was not top of my class. I had to work harder, elevate my bar. And what I got from Stanford was that in life, it's about first who, then what. Mm. I learned that talented people, one talented, very talented guy or person is worth 10 very good people. But it's hard to find. All right, so let's talk about your consumer uh, a little bit. It's an interesting time, to say the least, uh, in the world. You have a global view. Uh, let's go straight to China. You know China. where uh, obviously Big business for us. it's a huge business, amazing business. Uh, and yet there are concerns about the Chinese consumer right now. What do you see? And that played out in your latest earnings, and and investors were a little spooked by it. No, no, no. The, the China for us has been an amazing story, and the thing is that many years ago we decided to focus on the premium and super premium side of the market in China. Mm. And if you look at China, you cannot talk averages. You have to go by segment. Interesting. Because it's such a huge market, right? It's the biggest market in the world for beer, for most consumer goods. And when you go segment by segment, what you see is that this year there is industry decline in China, but that's on average. But if you go to premium, super premium, they are growing. And that's where the growth is and the margins are. In China, for example, Budweiser is the number one premium beer in China by far. And Corona, Star Tuaho Garden, lead the, the super premium segment by far again. So we lead both segments where the margins are and where the growth is. So that for us, that's why our business in China, our profitability, is way higher than any of our competitors in China, even if you add them together, mm. despite us being number three in volume. But we're number one in profitability, if you, even if you add the next four. So that's because of the brands we have, the premium they command, the consumer insights we've always had, and the things we offer, given the consumer insights. Rito, help me out here, because I thought in terms of your latest earnings report, you did talk about consumer demand low in the United States and in China. And from some other makers, some beverage makers, we've seen that they've talked about increased demand in China. So I guess we're trying to reconcile what's going on in China right now. Well, in China right now, for sure, there was some deceleration. Yeah. But still growing, you know, at 6%, the whole economy. And in our business, nightlife is a very important channel where Budweiser dominates, has the, the most of the share. And that nightlife got a bit, a bit um, de-emphasized given some of the celebrations in China. Mm. So that happens from time to time. So it's from not time to time, the, the nightlife goes down a little bit, then it comes back up. So this quarter was a quarter 
in which nightlife came back came came down a little bit, and that's that impacts Budweiser, which is our main brand in China. So did investors? But this over- is uh, something temporary in our view. So investors overreacted then in your view because they shaved something like twenty billion dollars off your market cap. So was that yeah, an overreaction? You know, you know. Like how do we, you how do you read that as somebody who runs this massive yeah. company? You see the global trends. You look longer term. How do you read something like that? Our company is very different in that respect. In that we have a control group. We are a public company, but we have a control group, and because of that. We have the luxury of looking at the short term, but most of all, looking at the long term. So we're not shy of investing the short term, even when the, the cycle is negative for some sort, because we're investing for next years, next five years, next 10 years. So we've always been that kind of company. We've been in business now for 30 years. Yeah. And uh, we've had situations in which there is a disconnect in which the short term sometimes has some pressures, most of which we anticipated, by the way, at the beginning of the year, that the third quarter would be under pressure. But so what? This is one quarter. And that was Carlos Brito, CEO of AB InBev. We caught up with him just before we left New York to head out to Stanford. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. And we're joined by Nadine Terman. She is founder, CEO, and CIO of Solstein Capital. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco and very much of a piece with the theme of this show. She's a graduate of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, which, by the way, you might have heard, it's the number one business school in America. And Carol <laughs> Master and I are here on campus. Uh, Nadine, it's too bad that, you know, you're working so hard because otherwise you could have class outside with us. It's great to have you with us. Hey, they unfortunately uh, couldn't um, release the details of the announcement beforehand, so I drove into the city for work. But uh, I'm glad that you're enjoying the sunshine. <laughs> we are indeed. And check out this market environment right now. Tell us a little bit about um, kind of how you see it, because here we are, you know, we hit some records again in terms of those major equity averages. What's the investment environment look like to you? Sure. I think there's a few things to look at. First being earnings, second being uh, complacency or how investors are positioned. And the third would be um, why the market is up today, right? So I think for the first one, if you look at earnings, uh, what you have is about, um, you know, you only have about 140 more companies in the S&P 500 report. And while top line growth is positive, earnings have been down, especially in energy, materials, consumer discretionary, financials, and infotech. So that's a lot of sectors. So it's really a story of haves and have nots. So instead of looking at just top down how things are going, you really have to pull back the, the onion here, all the layers to see what's happening. And what you're seeing is margins being squeezed. So, you know, we're staying long, things like REITs and utilities, which tend to do well when GDP growth is slowing um, and inflation growth and mar- up is up and margins are down. So that's one thing that we would tell folks to take a look at is like, who's winning and why, who might be losing and why, and making sure that you're positioned correctly. Um, and the second is complacency. 
the, if you look at the VIX positioning, I think I saw it on top Bloomberg News, too. There's a kind of a, a dual story there, but you're at one in three years. These scores of negative 1.5. So just like April, just like July, investors are really betting on new all-time highs in the market and lower volatility. So whenever we see asymmetry, we tend to look at that and say, okay, if that doesn't come to pass, you probably make a lot of money on the other side. Yeah, the whole volatility question, I am fascinated by. You know, we bring our investors, the VIX, uh, an update on the VIX every day after the close of trading. And, you know, a 12 handle, a 13 handle, oh. I mean, that is unbelievable when you think about sort of where we would expect to be at this point. How do you square that? You know, what, what ends up happening is there's not just investors and passive investors, but you have machines that are trading momentum. And so when things move up, the momentum is to go up. When things go down, momentum can be to go down. So you have to be really careful as an individual investor who's betting on fundamentals or um, looking to say, well, where is the puck going after today or tomorrow to say, well, do I really believe in that positioning? Like on the flip side of what you said, you look at soybeans. The one-year Z-score in terms of CF2C non-commercial net long positioning is about 2.5. And so what it's also saying is, like, everyone's already bet on the trade deal. <laughs> they know some beans are going to get bought. Yeah. So other than ag, other than, you know, volatility going down, reaching all new ties, um, what else, right? And one of the areas we love the most that's probably has been most non-consensus till the past week was really inflation. So we came on um, Bloomberg TV and radio talking a little bit about reflation and how to bet on that. So talk to us, we want to, you know, glad to get your market perspective, but tell us a little bit too about your time here at Stanford and getting your MBA and what that experience was like. Sure, I was one of the few female investors coming into school. I did take a few years, about I think six or seven working before I came in. So I was at a point in my life where I knew what I wanted to do. In fact, I had gotten into school before I even came. Um, but then delayed it for three years. So going back was special for me. I went there as an undergrad, um, but I really appreciated the environment. Uh, anyone who knows or goes there really sees the love of innovative and entrepreneurial spirit from the faculty, the students. Um, and I was actually an example of someone who started my own firm uh, in an industry where it's very rare for women to exist at all, if you want to say that. Um, and I think Part of the appeal yeah. relates to not just all the resources inside the university and Stanford Business School, but it's surrounding it. A lot of people talk about, it. well, is it luck cause just because they were in Silicon Valley, or, but did they also help build it? So when you're there, it does give you a lot of optimism to think big, say, well, what can I build? What can I do? How do I make a difference? So it was a special time for me. Well, and I do wonder, you know, given your background working in both private equity and, you know, investing in private and public companies, Nadine, what you make of this moment where we are, we've talked a lot about WeWork, we're going to hear from Peloton tomorrow, which is another example of a company where the private markets and the public markets maybe had a little bit of a disagreement about what a company was worth. What do you make of that as someone who has looked across the whole spectrum of investments? You know, it's interesting because there's still a lot of private equity folks who are doing a lot of roll-up-your-sleeves work to create value, increase EBITDA, increase cash flow, pay down debt, do things like that. But then there was also just a lot of money chasing private deals. I mean, if you look 25 years ago, you didn't have public company investors going investing pre-IPO. And you saw that from hedge funds and pensions in the last decade, as well as a ton of capital from 
and allocators going to private equity because you don't have the mark-to-market risk. So it, I believe that it's very understandable and probably expected that when you have a ton of money chasing deals, whether they're you know mid-market buyout or pre-IPO, whether it's you know round four, uh, five, six, you know, series F financing, what you end up is that there's going to be people piling into money in the hopes that it goes public or taken out. And if it doesn't happen, there's a lot of unhappy investors there. Nadine, just have about a minute left here. Um, I'm curious too about running a hedge fund uh, in this space. I feel like hedge funds, we've talked an awful lot about underperformance and the inability to you know, kind of find returns. Tell me, from what I understand, you guys pick a few um, targets, right? And that are positions and really kind of focus on them. Just your quick thoughts on that. Just got about 40 seconds. Sure. I think for us, being able to define where you can add value is really important and have data to back it up. And as global investors, we're not, I guess, we don't have the necessity to look just at TNT or the U.S. We can look at all sectors. We can look across the world, uh, the world to be able to choose some more high conviction plays. So for us, it's been freeing to have that type of, I guess, um, more active returns and active profile as an investor versus a very small box or, or, or small area to play in. And that's how we founded our niche, being able to be high conviction for our investors. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Nadine Terman, founder, CEO, and CIO of Solstein Capital, on the phone from San Francisco, a proud alum of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. You may have heard they're number one. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.